Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. Heading towards the Western Front, Alex, who have we got on today? Oh, we've got my bro on today, my Russian friend. Sergey, how are you? Hello, Alex. Hello, Alina. Greetings from Amsterdam. Oh, you were just telling us off air about what happened when the Dutch government announced that all the weed shops were closing. Oh, yeah, that was a bit of an adventure for most weed consumers. But now they're all open. You can even sit inside if you want. I'm not a big weed consumer, but kind of if you want to, you're always welcome to join. Yeah, it was like, I think it was the same for McDonald's here when they announced they were closing. Different priorities, dude, different priorities. First world, oh, yeah. What, yeah, first world problems. Sergey, tell everyone how to pronounce your surname because I can't do it. Uh, it's actually Polikin. Uh, there's a very weird Russian letter, which doesn't exist in any other language. Yeah, seriously, I had a Russian ex-boyfriend and they spent about a year and a half trying to get me to say that. That uh, is it a vowel in Russian? Yeah. Yeah, I tried to get me saying that for a year and a half and just mocked me the whole time. I just call you my big mean Russian pal because yeah, go you ahead. are. Um, Sergey, I miss you, man. I miss the Western Front. Here today, I've wanted to get you on for ages, actually. I hit you up the week we started History Hack and you turned around last week and went, uh, where's my interview? And rightly yeah. so, because I forgot all about it. You're going to talk to us about Russians on the Western Front. Yep, a very unknown and small chapter of the whole Western Front story, really. Yeah, so start by telling us when do they get there and why, because they've got a big enough front of their own to deal with, haven't they? Yeah, eventually they arrive in April 16th, uh, but the story sort of starts a bit early in the beginning of 1915, where I think everybody understood that the sort of casualties on the Western Front are not, on the Western Front are not really sustainable. Mm. Uh, and kind of France specifically starts looking at uh, the pools of manpower. They basically take Senegal, Algeria, they put all the colonials, they kind of they bring troops from Indochina. And there's always kind of those things like, well, you know, like we have a Russian ally and they seem to have an inexhaustible source of troops, really. So why not tap there? Uh, interestingly enough, in 1914, and sort of in the heat of the uh, August and September crisis, uh, Times had already reported witness accounts of trains moving from Scotland to the Channel ports, carrying grumpy men with extensive facial hair and with snow <laughs> on their boots. <laughs> I love uh, it. Was, so stereotypical. Was, yeah, it's like Times. Yeah. But like in early 15, the French government basically uh, starts probing and the delegation goes to St. Petersburg and they ask for 300,000 troops to be sent to the Western Front. 
Uh, Russian army at the same time is totally woefully unprepared for the World War One. You know it, and basically after the first battles in East Prussia and in Poland, the old kind of army is basically gone. Uh, they are running out of shells. They are running out of weapons. Uh, Russian procurement commissions are running around the world trying to buy anything from like Grali Bell rifles, Arisakas from Japanese, like Remington yeah. rolling blocks from US. Our answer was to send you a loose. load of defunct Japanese firearms we didn't want. Yeah, like, like there's a weird collection of stuff just, just basically going to the country. At the same time, there's a huge shell crisis. Uh, basically, the factories are producing about like three, four shells a month per gun. So you can imagine how kind of uh, helpful that is for the Eastern Front. But like the French basically say, look, if you send us some men, we can send you some munitions. Uh, different discussions at different levels, but basically eventually they agree that uh, one brigade, one infantry brigade, about 9,000 men and 200 officers, would be sent to France as a sort of a talking of inter-allied friendship, and then we'll continue discussions. Uh, so this first brigade is actually, it's an interesting that they didn't send sort of a Spetsnaz force, so they didn't pull the brigade from the front with frontline experience. They basically send recruits. Uh, with some sprinkling of convalescence, and we'll talk about the convalescence later, because I think there's one gentleman in this whole force uh, who is quite prominent, who will become quite prominent. Mm -hmm. Uh, so the, the brigade is basically one regiment is recruited in Moscow from the workers, and that's going to backfire badly later on. And the second is recruited in Samara on the Volga region, primarily peasants, but yeah, not all peasants, but kind of 50-50 peasants and workers. Um, it's actually a relatively rich mix of ethnicities there. So kind of the force has been recruited. Officers are generally kind of French-speaking. Uh, men, the only qualification they need to pass is they ask, can you read? And the answer is yes, they are kind of eligible. So nobody really checks. So eventually kind of you get, some people are quite illiterate there. So uh, basically French is one of the qualifications for the officers. It's not a problem for nobility. Most nobility would still be able to speak French. Like in the 18th, uh, sort of 18th and 19th century, it was more or less language of nobility. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, in the Napoleonic Wars, uh, they basically had instances when officers could not command their men because simply they only spoke French. Uh, yeah. And officers being killed in bivouacs because like in the middle of the night, they'll be walking around and talking French to each other. So like the peasants were like, oh, French, shoot them. <laughs> That's uh, logical to me. Yeah, look like Russian peasants probably are not the smartest people in the world, but like when they hear French, they shoot. It's a breakdown uh, plan. Yeah, well, it happened. Uh, so basically, uh, they leave Moscow on February 3rd, six, on 1916, and they actually take the route through the Trans-Siberian Railway. They board the, uh, the, sh the French ships in uh, Dalian, which is Dalian, I think, now in China, uh, and they take the whole route all through like uh, Hong Kong, Singapore, India, Suez Canal, and basically arrive in Marseille. Uh, so how, how did the French people react to having these Russians turn up on their doorstep? Well, basically, it was a huge PR stunt for everybody. Mm. So uh, it's a near hysterical reception in Marseille. You can still find the pictures on the web and the journals publish it. Um, it's basically a huge PR stunt. Uh, a light newspaper basically claimed the size of the men, the determination, the quality, because they are sort of relatively big men. Um, kind of at the same time, you understand Verdun is there. Uh, kind of Somme is about to start. Uh, so. 
the French army is not in the best of the spirits. They're basically a string of defeats and uh, this sort of this whole allied help and Russians are here to help us. I mean, that's generally kind of quite a welcome thing. They have a parade in Paris on July 14th, I think it's Bastille Day, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, generally they're very welcome. Uh, the French actually undertook to equip the, uh, the brigade. So they are all dressed in the Russian uniforms, but uh, they are basically given French weapons, French Andrian helmets, gas masks, uh, basically you name it. Uh, and uh, yeah, but they, before going to the trenches, obviously they need some training because they, they, uh, they're basically raw recruits, plus they recruit from the Eastern Front. So the kind of Eastern Front experience doesn't really help. Officers are not really kind of up to the speed uh, of the Western Front development. So basically, they go to the Champagne region. I have my hypothesis why this region. I'll tell you later. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, and they start training. Uh, they also get the French artillery. So the artillery is totally sort of supplied by the French, including the crews. So there are nine batteries uh, uh, of uh, French 75s. Uh, and the main task in the training is to really teach them to fight the trench battle. Uh, because they're just basically not used to it. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing they're not used to is the poison gas. Although it was first used on the Eastern Front, I mean, the conditions there are totally different, and obviously gas is much more prevalent on the Western Front, so they mm-hmm. kind of they need to teach. Uh, funny enough, German press actually picks their story up very quickly, but they have a very interesting way to look at it, and they basically remark that the arrival of the Russian troops in the West actually only proves that how bad the state of things might be for the French. Uh, which is kind of, kind of right. It's hard to disagree with this point. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, so, what do they? They have to give them some training, and then you say they put them into the Champagne region. Tell us why you think that is. Then, what do they do with them like originally? Uh, well, basically, they are trained in the. Uh, I think it's called the. Uh, let me look at my notes. My my Le Grand camp. It's actually still the French army camp. Uh, if you go into what the Reims area. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would uh, you would still see it's a, it's a military camp and there's a small Russian cemetery there actually a very nice very beautiful location I would say uh, my hypothesis is is kind of humorous in a way because champagne was such was such a prevalent drink among the nobility so when they bed kind of the brigade landed in France and the officers basically said can you put us somewhere close to where the champagne originates from so that's how the kind of champagne region. Um, uh, kind of appeared in the, in the history, but this is kind of my humorous hypothesis. I, would think I like it's it. Of... It's kind of stereo. I like it feeds the stereotype, doesn't it, a bit? But it's quite amusing. If you are going to be dumped anywhere on the Western Front, send us where the decent booze is. Yeah, I think it, I think it's it's a valid hypothesis. Absolutely. Um, funny enough, while the first brigade is in training, a delegation of the French government goes back to uh, Russia, and actually, I think it's led by Viviani, who was like the new Minister of War at this time or deputy minister of war. Uh, and they basically finally agree that there will be four more brigades sent. Actually, two brigades to France and two brigades to Salonika. Let's keep the Salonika front totally as a separate story because I think uh, it's, it's generally a moot point what they actually did and what the mm-hmm. other allied forces did in Salonika. I mean, it's a moot point to me. Uh, but yeah, well, in uh, Salonika, kind of, it was shit and everybody had to send people. Yeah, but, otherwise, it wasn't fair. That's basically the story of the Salonika front, right? Yeah, it, it will appear in our story as well because there's certain yeah. parts of the kind of certain troops was destined to Salonika, but they ended up in France. But kind of to cut the story short, eventually uh, the deal is struck that this, there will be total, in total five brigades. So we're talking about 50,000 men, give or take, uh, in exchange for 1.8 million rifles, cars, saddles, and other military equipment and munitions. So hence you have this whole story that 
basically Russia sold lives for the shells. And they needed, they desperately needed munitions yeah, and material in Russia. It's like, if, and one thing is right, they do have an abundance of manpower um, and they have bugger all else, basically. So it's not, it's not a not sensible, it's not an insensible decision for the Russians to make, is it? Yeah, I mean, especially given that the kind of servitude among the peasantry was abolished like 50 years ago, give or take, about kind of only 50, 50 years prior to that. Mm. Uh, I think the attitude is still kind of, you know, like manpower, kind of counting, counting lives hasn't been kind of the big thing in the Russian history generally. Uh, and here is a classic example of basically saying, hey, we need guns, but we have men, let's kind of exchange it. It's kind of, yeah. it, from, from a current European perspective, that's that's... Horrific, yeah. (laughs) But kind of in those days, they said, "Okay, fine. It is. It is what it is." Yeah. So, tell us about them going into the line and serving on the Western Front. What do they get up to first? Uh, First, they they actually uh, get in June in uh, 1916. They first get into the trenches. Uh, It's the first spell. It's the Fort de la Pompel. It's it's a small destroyed fort next to Reims. And uh, it's actually, you can still visit. There's a small Russian museum there. There's even the Russian flag flying next to the fort. So this is a relatively quiet sector. Uh, still, Germans very quickly pick up who's in front of them. They, there are some probing attacks. There are some trench raids. Basically, there are two ways to look at it. Uh, on the one hand, the casualties were quite good. I mean, um, they stay in the sector until October. And the total casualties are, are, are somewhere between five and 600 men. So, which is kind of, what, 7% of the total force? Which is kind of a lot for a quiet sector. Uh, but uh, there are two ways to read it. Uh, on the one hand, there are some sort of witness accounts of the guys who served about those heroic deeds and basically Germans attacking in vain and kind of Russians going into the, the, the trenches. I mean, but still the casualties are too high. So I think it's pro- probably kind of a normal kind of uh, trench attrition. So nothing really to report there. There were a couple of gas attacks, which were quite ghastly, and I'll talk about them later, but they were more, uh, they fell more on the 3rd Brigade, which eventually arrived in France, uh, and they actually took the uh, sector in October 1916. Uh, They never go to Verdun or any other famous places. They never serve at the Somme, so they basically spend the whole career uh, in this particular sector of the front. Which becomes important in 1917, doesn't it? Tell us, how do these men react being thousands of miles from home when the Tsar abdicates and Russia begins falling apart? Uh, yeah, so they basically, they basically learn about the February Revolution abdication uh, in March uh, 1917. At the same time, the preparation for this famous Nivelle Offensive is, uh, is ongoing. And I think the, the one important thing to, uh, to, actually two important things to mention here. First, Paris is full of the emigre community, or Russian emigre community, and they're mostly socialists of different types, uh, revolutionary elements, as you would probably put them. And uh, they immediately start kind of sending um, emissaries, and they start sending newspapers uh, to, the, uh, to the soldiers. Uh, plus, if you look at, again, at the composition of the force and the kind of the first regiment being recruited in Moscow, they still have a very strong uh, remembrance of the 1905 revolution in Moscow, which was suppressed quite, uh, quite uh, bloodily. Mm-hmm. And um, there are some socialists in the ranks. So eventually, uh, there's quite an amount of propaganda that goes through the force. But, and uh, the second important point is that 
There's order number one from the provisional government, which basically gives the soldier the right. Because before that, the soldier was basically kind of uh, a silent subordinate to the officer. So he had to call the officer Vasha Vysoko Blagorodia, which kind of translates to roughly in English, your, almost like Royal Highness. The soldier could be beaten. Uh, he basically had no rights at all. Now suddenly they can call the officers uh, Gospodin Kapitan, like uh, Mr. Captain or something like that. Mm. Uh, and they were equals. The soldiers started having rights. They, they were allowed to have the committees. So they first started kind of putting the committees in the, in the regiment. Uh, however, these committees voted in favor of participating in the Nivelle Offensive. The French, are, the French are kind <laughs> of actually looking, looking at this with surprise because obviously in the French army, no committees are obviously allowed. The French soldiers are citizen soldiers. But again, there still kind of is, is, is a big divide between officers and men, bigger than in the British army, I would presume. But still kind of French, the French turned a blind eye at the moment. I think they have other things to worry about. Uh, Again, there's language barriers. Obviously, when the troops are in the trenches, it's fine because they're basically officered by the Russians. But uh, kind of when they're pulled back off the lines, there's a, there's a barrier. There, of course, some stories of mistreatment by the French. But again, you can never verify if the stories are true or not after the revolution. So, um, Nivelle Offensive. Um, they go in the line. Actually, the uh, first brigade... Uh, was in the front line and they were supposed to be in the first of the first of taking force. Uh, the third brigade uh, was about was 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 supposed to be kind of a flying uh, reserve, if you will, a mobile reserve. Uh, they attack on the 16th of April and they actually capture the uh, village of Corsi. Uh, it's a very small, beautiful village right now. There's a huge kind of toll station next to it uh, on the major road, and that's how you know where it is. Uh, there's a small chateau there and uh, a small canal. So, but anyway, it was quite a crucial village. It's on the flank of the whole uh, offensive. They do capture. They actually perform quite well. Uh, they secure the village. Uh, they take 530 plus uh, German prisoners. But casualties are very high. So we're talking about 700 men killed, including 22 officers, around 300 wounded. Uh, it's, it's basically half of the brigade is gone by the time they're, they're actually uh, uh, pulled out of the battle. Mm. And that, I mean, it's, a, it's similar up the line, though, for the French, isn't it? It's, it's, Nivelle Offensive is just blatantly horrific. Yeah, it's it, it, a disaster it, 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 in general. It's a stupid affair in the, way, the, way you, the way you look at it and the way it's been, uh, it's been tried. I mean, I mean, Germans basically know what's going, what's going to hit them. I mean... Uh, I was, oh, last summer I, I was on the tour with an Americans uh, and I went to Plateau California, which is a, uh, sort of the top of the Chemin de Dam. Mm. And kind of, if you wander into the wood, just like slightly off the road, like literally 10 meters, huge trenches, shells, I mean, the stuff is still there. I mean, literally, I mean, the, the sort of battle that they wage there, I mean, it defies uh, kind of understanding. Mm. Uh, funny enough, the third brigade, sort of basically the first brigade is pulled out of the line on the 23rd of April, so basically spend a week. Uh, they capture Kursi and they, they keep it, uh, which is a big thing because the Germans, the main German thing in this, uh, uh, in this, in this offensive was that they basically counterattacked. Uh, so the, the kind of the French army went into the vacuum and then they got hit. Uh, the third brigade entered the, uh, the battle on uh, April 19th. Uh, they were actually attached to the French. Uh, they also performed quite well. 
they even capture German field better intact. Uh, but basically, after the uh, after the counterattacks, they're back to uh, to the starting line. So by end of April 25th, there are 70 officers and four four and a half thousand men basically uh, cash reported as casualties. Uh, interestingly enough, all four regiments, because there are two brigades, two regiments each, they all awarded croat again with the palms. Uh, in the French uh, kind of system, it basically means that the units were mentioned in the army dispatches. We sort of you get the Croat again plus the palm. It means that you basically mention the dispatches. Mm -hmm. If it's the star, I think you mentioned the army dispatches. I don't remember exactly what, but basically it's, uh, it denotes that the unit performed pretty well. Yeah. Nivelle writes to General Alexeyev, the commander of the Russian army, that the expeditionary force has especially distinguished itself. So I mean, kind of the praise is there, but something snaps really, and uh, once they're basically pulled back, uh, the mutiny begins. Yeah, let's put this into context, though, because mm -hmm. there is mutiny everywhere in the French army following this offensive because it is a total car crash, isn't it? Um, so the yeah. Russians aren't the only ones kicking off at this point. Yeah, but also the, 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 other, th the other thing to, to remember, I mean, look, those people are thousands, thousands of kilometers away from their families, from, from, kind of from their own country. They don't get uh, mail. Um, they have very limited, they're limited, they, the leave is limited basically for, to the closest villages, like the officers can go to Paris, but the soldiers have, have to stay close mm. uh, to the camps. Um, uh, there's a language barrier, there's revolution at home, uh, so they don't understand what needs, what sort of, what does it mean for them. Uh, officers are also lost because they don't understand what, what it means for them as well. So really kind of, they're in the, in the vacuum. And uh, plus, at the same time, this general order number one from the provisional government that allows the soldiers' rights and soldier com committees. Mm. Uh, so eventually, uh, the general asks the whole, General Lachvitsky, the commander of the first, uh, first brigade, he basically asks the two brigades to take the oath to the provisional government, and only the officers do. On May 1st, there's a huge demonstration under the red flags. Officers immediately distance themselves. Uh, and basically, uh, the soldiers elect their own representatives who become sort of the de facto people who are running the whole uh, brigade, the whole two brigades. Uh, they immediately demand return back home. Uh, the two deputations are actually sent to Petrograd to demand the return of the troops to Russia, to meet the mm -hmm. provisional government and demand the return. Um, and the French are basically, they're just like, Hey, what's going on here? We don't understand what to do with this. So eventually the idea comes that, hey, let's move them somewhere kind of away from the front. So on May 25th, uh, the troops are moved to the camp at Neuf Chateau in the Vosges Mountains. So it's the southern part of the front. Uh, General Castelnau visits them on June 4th, and he basically receives the, uh, he's received with full military honor. So they have the parade and everything. It all seems fine. But he quickly understands that the situation is actually beyond repair and the brigade should be either sent to Russia or kind of if this is not possible to some isolated point somewhere in the interior of the France. And hence they came at, uh, the camp at La Courtine, which is in south central France, I think it's like six kilometers from Limoges. So that's where they all kind of loaded on the trains and that's where they are sent. They're still armed. Important to say that they, they have not been disarmed, so they still have the rifles with them. They still have their field artillery. Uh, but uh, once they arrive there, 
they basically start doing nothing. So they spend time drinking, harassing the local populace, so basically stealing chicken, stealing alcohol, not <laughs> what they're consuming. So basically whatever the army does when there are no officers. Um, I mean, there's still kind of instances of petty theft, uh, drunkenness, but again, nothing major. So there's no like uh, wholesale disobedience. I think which is very similar to what happened in the rest of the French army. Mm. Uh, with exception of some other units. Uh, there are some attempts to put the whole French mutiny on the Russian shoulders, uh, but I think the force was so insignificant in the numbers uh, that it's kind of it's kind of strange way to putting things. But I think, I think uh, longer term, once the whole French mutiny uh, story becomes more evident, I think there are less and less voices that actually try to put the Russian brigades as the sort of the spark that kind of, uh, opened up the whole problem. Mm. Um, interestingly enough, in late July, there's a rift between two brigades. And again, this, the third brigade, which um, I didn't talk much about them, but uh, they are notorious for two, for two things. First of all, the third brigade arrives uh, in... Uh, uh, let me check my notes quickly. Um, in August 1916. It's mm. uh, recruited in the Urals, mostly, again, largely worker-based uh, with some sprinkling of the uh, peasants. Interestingly, it was supposed to go to Salonika originally, but on its way through France, because they sailed through Arkhangelsk, uh, they stopped sending troops through the Chinese route. They eventually go from Arkhangelsk to Brest, directly to Brest. Uh, on, the, on the way, they actually killed their own colonel, who unfortunately had a German surname Krause, uh, there were quite a number of German-sounding names in the Russian army, especially in the fleet. They're mostly Baltic Germans. Uh, so they killed the guy because they think that he was trying to put up the lights to attract the German submarines. So there's some sort of really BS explanation why they did it. So I think six men are shot for this offense. And eventually the commander of the expeditionary force basically said, look, let's keep them in France because God knows what's going to happen once we sort of ship them on to Salonika through, uh, through Marseille. Uh, actually, the third brigade was very interesting. Uh, for three, uh, there are three things to, to, to talk about. First, there's a Captain Vadim Maslov, who is the last lover of the famous Dutch spy Mata Hari. Okay. And she was actually captured uh, when she, I think, she went from Spain to France to see him, and that's when she gets captured. Uh, the guy denies any involvement uh, eventually, so he kind of behaves in not a very manly way, I would say. But that's that's the only thing we hear about him. Uh, there's a very interesting guy, private first class and machine gunner, Radion Malinowski. And his surname suggests a uh, very strong, I mean, to me it suggests the Polish uh, ancestry, but uh, he is born in Odessa. Mm. And I'll talk about him later because this is the guy who actually becomes the Marshal of the Soviet Union and the Minister of Defense under Khrushchev. Uh, a very famous guy. And uh, the third let's say, person, is the small bear cub whom the officers buy for eight rubles uh, on the way from Yekaterinburg to Arkhangelsk. And this uh, poor bear actually uh, lives throughout the whole uh, spell on the Western Front. Uh, he uh, is raised by men in hockey, so he, is thoroughly, he thoroughly distrusts French uniforms, so he was very aggressive towards the French officers. <laughs> I love it, an angry French bear, an angry anti-French bear. Yeah, uh, he will subsist later on the diet of oranges, would develop a profound love for cognac. Surprising. He would be gassed because he would live in the trenches with the troops. 
And I guess it's probably the first recorded case for PTSD uh, for a bear, really, because I mean, like he was drinking perfume, like that. Anything that you say now, from now on, on this podcast that goes out to largely a British audience is not going to eclipse the fact that you have a, a bear in the trenches. You know that, right? Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com yeah yeah i mean that's a story kind of i really tried to verify it in different accounts and it it really appears in all the accounts that there was a bear eventually in 1918 when the troops would be, would be sent to uh 19, 19, 1919 and 1920 when the troops would be sent back to russia the bear would stay in the Paris zoo and apparently there is an account that once the bear died was buried in the same uh cemetery in hillary uh Saint where the, the, all the Russian soldiers are buried, most of the Russian soldiers are buried, buried. So kind of the bear is really the symbol of the whole kind of expeditionary force. Really. But kind of the third brigade is, has a more rural background. So there's a rift between the two brigades. The first brigade, and especially the first regiment of the brigade, the Moscow regiment becomes, and again, I am born, I was born in Moscow. So kind of for me, this is my regiment in a way. Mm. So they become the sort of the kernel of this whole uh, mutiny in a way. And the third eventually basically walks out of the camp to a different camp. And now begins the really confusing story of the whole mutiny. And I have to give the credit to the French that they actually didn't suppress it uh, in force, really. They kind of, there were back and forth negotiations really throughout almost like the whole of the summer until September, uh, when eventually there's, uh, uh, I think it's September 10th, there's an ultimatum to the remainder of the of the kind of the camps basically said, look, guys, you lay the arms, you walk out and sort of accept the fate or we basically storm you. Mm. Uh, eventually, there were, there were roughly uh, 8,000 men in the camp left. And then the 15th of September, an ultimatum was delivered. Um, and then artillery opens fire next day, basically. Uh, when we talk about artillery opening fire, they started with the Dutch shells. Then they fire smoke shells, so they really try to prevent uh, killing as much as possible. So eventually, uh, the whole uh, camp is cleared. Uh, I think it took them two days. Uh, the attackers lose only one man and three wounded. Defenders 10 dead, 44 wounded. So, I mean, it's no kind of wholesale slaughter as it was portrayed by, by the press, the revolutionary press specifically. I mean, it's basically mm -hmm. a very small-scale operation. They're actually suppressed by the loyal troops, by the loyal Russian troops. Uh, and artillery has been also Russian. 
there was an artillery brigade going to Salonik. It was stopped. They were rerouted to to the camp, and they basically took part. So, eventually, mid December 1917, they have uh, 140 officers and uh, 6,800 relatively reliable kind of and trustworthy men uh, left. There are 5,000 men to be sent to work details. There are about 2,000 sick and wounded in hospitals. There are 500 discharged men. There are 1,200 convalescents, 100 uh, invalids. There are 300 escaped POWs from Germany. And there are 3,000 men at work details uh, elsewhere in France already. So there's a question. We have 18,000 men of whom approximately one third can be trusted to an extent. Mm. Uh, what do you do? At the same time, in Russia, there's obviously, obviously there's a provisional government, uh, and uh, they're not really willing to take this man because they just don't know what what needs to happen. Uh, they don't know what to do with them because they have other problems on their hands, and especially the fact that the brigades are actually saying, "Look, get us back." Yeah. The government says, "Hey." We don't need you back, really, because, like, look, we have our own communists here running amok, really, and there's another revolution coming. So why, why do we need kind of experienced men with frontline mm. experience? And kind of why do we need you here? And the French are like, I don't need a load of crazy Russians who have drunk too much stealing our chickens and causing yeah, trouble. Yeah, and, and the French are basically it's like, look, we have our own problems again. Yeah. There's like December 17th, the Brest-Litovsk peace is coming, uh, and the French, uh, the Germans are going to attack. So kind of the military worth of these people is really zero, so kind of, that's a problem. So eventually, uh, and this, this is sort of a sad story, but sort of to me it's a bit of a sad story and story of revival in a sense. Mm. Um, in December 1917, uh, the sort of a Russian legion is born, and in a way, basically the officers say, look, we can still single out certain men who would like to fight uh, for the for, for, for the French cause. Uh, these men uh, would come not only from the expeditionary force, there would also be some men from the Foreign Legion. There, I think there were like 150 men who transferred from the Foreign Legion. Uh, there were actually a lot of Russians fighting for the, for, for the French uh, in, in different uh, capacities. Uh, plus, there are already some emigrant community and some people from the emigrants who would like to join the force. So eventually, they... Uh, there are seven officers, two doctors, a priest, and 374 other ranks. And this becomes sort of a kernel of the legion, as it was called the Legion of Honor later. I mean, Russians are notorious for giving their forces like big names. Uh, but basically, uh, they are attached to the Moroccan Shock Division. This is the only French unit, to the best of my knowledge, which doesn't have a number. So it's uh, the Moroccan, I think Senegalese, a uh, bunch of other kind of troops, parts of Foreign Legion. So a sort of kind of mixed bag of people, uh, or, or as our friend uh, Peter Hart would say, fine body of men. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which I always give them kind of su- almost suicidal missions. Really. So ultimately, there's some, some recruiting uh, going on, and then they attract the XPWs, Foreign Legion people. They even have an air squadron with 40 pilot, Russian pilots there. So eventually they have uh, four battalions, 60 officers, uh, almost 2,000 men uh, in April 1990. Of those 2,000 men, one and a half thousand are actually recipients of St. George Cross. So these are really 
kind of men who know how to fight. And it was very difficult to get a St. George Cross, believe me. It was not kind of the medal which was given just for enlisting. It's like the equivalent of a VC, isn't it, in the Russian army? Uh, not really. I think it's some sort of bravery medal, really. There are four, kind of, there are four, um, yeah. gra- there are four grades. I think the grade number one would be somewhat equivalent to a VC, but... I think the hero of the Soviet Union would be your VC, really. Yeah. But in the uh, in the Tsar army, I don't think they really have some some equivalent to the VC. Actually, you know that the VCs are made from the Russian cannons, right? Apparently not. Apparently Chinese. Chinese captured by the Russians and then captured yeah. from the Russians by the uh, in the Crimean War. Yeah. So yeah, it's I, like I had, technically, say, yeah, it's it's because people now like to say that the VCs are made in China, like everything else. We call it Chinese land lead, then, right? <laughs> Um, so basically, this force uh, eventually fights um, a number of battles. Uh, they fight at Villa Britannia in April, and May uh, they fight near Soissons end of May. So they basically catch all these uh, German offensives uh, of the early 1918. Um, they fight in uh, Villa Cotere and Chateau Thierry and uh, near Laon. They actually assault uh, Hindenburg Line in September. Uh, Interestingly, they attack the famous Rossignol Trench, which is part of the Hinderburg Line. It's actually a big thing in the Moroccan division history and the French French Foreign Legion history. It's one of these big battles they are very um, famous for. So eventually, when you talk about the end of the war, um, they have, I think, uh, let me consult my notes here. I think they eventually have about 500 men left. So Mm. casualties are really appalling. Uh, and uh, they eventually march with the Moroccan division to Germany. They are part of the occupying force. Interestingly enough, they, there was always a question whether they would, how they would be treated by Germans when they, when they become prisoners of war, because eventually Russia is out of the war. So I think effectively all the Russian men fighting in the French ranks, all Russian citizens, uh, are not liable to the Geneva Convention. Yeah. Or are, kind of, are not part of the Geneva Convention, really. Uh, so they fight in the French uniforms. They actually really they really really push to be allowed to, to wear the russian uniforms but because for because of the reasons above mentioned they basically said look uh, fight in the colonial which is green uh, mustard uh, uniforms so they fight in the colonial french uniforms uh, only in november they're allowed to have their sort of small uh, insignia of the french french of the, of, of the russian legion so i mean for them they they are sort of part of the colonial division really and the french really kind of give them the credit for what they do, and they give them the credit for the bravery, they give them the credit for the casualties, but they don't really consider them as some sort of substantial fighting force, really. It's just like a small detachment in the Moroccan division, really. So what becomes of these men that survive till the armistice? Well, obviously, by the time of the armistice, you have the Soviet Union, or... Mm. I don't remember how it was called in the beginning. Sorry for that. But basically, the Soviet government uh, really starts saying, hey, we need them back. But you guys pay for the transportation, plus the Soviet government interns some French and British citizens. So there's really a mess going on. Uh, long story short, after kind of months and months of negotiations, threats, uh, small-scale exchanges, they basically finally agree uh, uh, to, to kind of to send people back. And uh, uh, eventually, uh, by December 1920, all of them are sent back. Some of them are sent back to the, uh, uh, to, to the white forces. Some of them sent to the red forces. Basically, the French approach is like, we don't care where you go as long as you go. 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> as long so, as you leave. <laughs> yeah, as long as you leave. Yeah, thank you. Goodbye. Um, uh, Interestingly enough, because we're not talking only about the 500 men remaining from the, from the uh, Russian Legion. We're talking about thousands of men who are sitting in Algeria basically doing some agricultural work. And these are sort of the hardcore uh, kind of rebels. Mm. We're talking about some other men who are doing labor duties in no, non-war zone. So basically, the, the original approach when they singled out the people who are reliable, uh, in, in, in late 1917, they basically said, all of you rest, you just like go and do some work. <laughs> and if you don't do the work, uh, then we put you in prison. The ringleaders stay in the prison, but again, nobody was shot. I mean, the surprising part of this whole mutiny, that there are no really kind of big repercussions. People who are sitting in the French prison, they can get out by simply saying, hey, I want to work. And they're and they relieved. Some of them actually made the whole transition from the French prison through the work details back to the Legion of Honor and then from the Legion of Honor back to the prison. I mean, there's always kind of this kind of turnaround of people. Plus, you have people from, from the hospitals. Sort of some people kind of stay in the hospitals for quite some time. Some people actually end up in the Legion again. They go back to the hospitals. There are always stories of mistreatment. But again, the stories should be taken with a grain of salt because simply they, they don't speak the language. Mm. So like when you end up in the hospital, there are like three or four guys from your detachment. These are the only people you can talk to. But when we talk about our friend Rodion Malinovsky, uh, you would see that he actually received the hospital treatment, which he was not entitled to. But the, so there really kind of there's a lot of propaganda around these people, and the propaganda was they were specifically targeted uh, by the Soviet press because they were sort of men sold for shells, and now they're mistreated by the bloody capitalists. So mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's a lot of kind of stories around them, and they're kind of the stories are twofold. You either get the Soviet propaganda, which basically talks about the oppressed people who were sort of made to plow the field at gunpoint. Uh, on the other hand, you have the press from the and the memoirs of the officers of the Russian legions who basically promote that they single-handedly captured the whole Hindenburg line and almost got to, to Berlin. Yeah. So the truth is somewhere in the middle, obviously. Obviously somewhere in the middle. But eventually by December 1920, it's over. Uh, all the ships have finally sailed. Uh, three and a half thousand men uh, choose to stay in France. Um, Actually, I heard stories and wrote, uh, read some stories about men who actually marry, stay in France. Uh, the French authorities are really not really lukewarm to kind of giving assistance to this man. So eventually some work as taxi drivers, some disappear in the countryside. I mean, mm-hmm. kind of the story is lost. Some generals like Lachiski, for example, who was commanding the 1st Brigade, uh, he died in the 20s, but he was basically... Uh, not allowed to keep he was he was not even given a French pension, but he was also he was a general. So uh, again, you need to understand the French. In 1920, Paris is full of uh, immigrants from Russia. Kind of, they have I think probably two and a half thousand, uh, two hundred uh, fifty thousand men. Your people uh, were everywhere, weren't they? All over Europe that had yeah. fled the revolution. Actually, many moved to Berlin because Berlin, with this whole kind of collapse of the German economy, was just cheaper to live in. Mm. So. But kind of you read the stories and, and those people who were like counts, barons, uh, people kind of from nobility, they work as taxi drivers, they kind of trying to make the living because they basically left the country with the suitcase. They were not allowed to take the money. So some live a rel- relatively lavish life, who ma- those who managed to have some wealth in the West, some actually work as uh, in, in the fields. I mean, this is really 
kind of a sad story. And I think the story of Russian immigration, again, if it probably deserves a separate discussion, but it, it, it is a very sad story for the country. And I think uh, uh, we lost a lot of people who could make a difference, I would say it that way. And we lost a very educated uh, and very capable part of the population. So you, you have the names like Sikorsky, who would eventually become one of the uh, kind of pioneers of aviation, a big aviation in the US. Uh, you have the guys like Zvarykin, who eventually invented uh, TV. So really a lot of a lot of names, really, who, who left the country and never came back. And unfortunately, I mean, it basically reduced the quality uh, of the manpower and reduced the quality, intellectual quality in the country, I would say. You keep mentioning your hero. Tell me about him. Um, I, I, kind of, I think that he is probably the most remarkable man out of this uh, 50,000, uh, kind of roughly 50,000 men who actually... Uh, turns up in, in the later part of the story kind of mm. there's a there's a boy of very modest uh, uh kind of uh, beginnings so he's born in 19 uh, 1898 in odessa in southern ukraine uh, again the name suggests that he has some polish ancestry actually he got his surname from his mother all the russians get the surname from the father so there are different stories that his father has died when he was not yet born but uh, there's another story that he was a bastard of one of the noble guys. But basically, he's just born in Odessa, very difficult childhood. In 1914, he basically just joins an army detachment. He's like only 16 years old. He was, he was about to be sent back, but eventually in the kind of whirlwind of the First World War, he stays with, the, uh, with this machine gun detachment. Uh, he wins his uh, first St. George Cross in early 1915. So look, the guy is barely 17. In October 15, he is wounded, uh, taken to the Urals where he is convalescing. And basically from there, he is transferred to the 3rd Brigade of Expeditionary Force, sails to France. Uh, he is machine gunner by then. He is wounded again on 16th of April 1917 and the first day of the Nivelle Offensive. His, uh, I think it was his right palm of the hand is really shattered. And basically the French doctors say, hey, we got to take it away. Or how you call it? Cut it off. Um, but eventually he talks himself into the British hospital somehow. I mean, I don't know how he managed to, but apparently he spoke French. Uh, so he gets himself into the British hospital in the Pernay, and the British doctor actually saves his hand. Uh, he is not taking part in the mutinies because he's, uh, it's, it's a pretty bad wound and he's, it's still bleeding. So he is back and forth into the hospital. Uh, he joins the Russian uh, legion. Uh, in September 18th, he is awarded Croata Guerre with the star. It basically means he was personally mentioned in dispatches. He was the, later the uh, St. George Cross of the third class. So he is a decorated guy. And he is really kind of by Russian army standards quite, he has quite an experience. Eventually, he is slated for repatriation uh, in April 1919. Uh, he survived the war, obviously. Um, he has love, he has some sort of lost thoughts. He uh, sort of says, suddenly he asks to remain in France to work as the chauffeur, then changes, changes his mind, boards the uh, troop ship. He goes for Vladivostok, so it's the sort of the eastern, kind of the easternmost uh, city in Russia. Yeah. He is actually landed in the territory of the White Army of Kolchak. He sort of goes uh, somehow through the White Army and joins the Reds. Joins the Communist Party in 1926, uh, goes to the military academy in 1927. He is in Spain uh, in 36 and 37. 
And that helps him avoid the purges somehow. He's a colonel in there. And then he basically commands the southern front uh, in December 1941. He, in December 43, he is commanding the third Ukrainian front also in the, uh, uh, in the south of Russia. In 43, he is full general, liberates his home Odessa. Uh, his front liberates it. He is marshal of the Soviet Union in 1944. Uh, he is participating in liberation of Manchuria in 1945. He is awarded the victory order, and this is kind of the award for the marshals. I think there are only 20 ever given away. Uh, only 20 orders awarded. He is one of the recipients. Actually, beautiful order. Google it. It's called the victory order, Order Pobeda in Russian, and it's, uh, it's kind of covered in diamonds, like a beautiful award. One of the recipients actually was the king of Romania for turning sides at the right moment. All the other were Russians, and uh, the Kasovsky was also the winner of the award. So he becomes the Minister of Defense of the Soviet Union in 1957 and actually maintains the post until 1967, until he died. And he actually had cancer and he only went to the hospital after he, he basically presided over the parade on the 7th of November. So he, he basically died a month after that. So he was the hardcore guy. There's actually a story that in 1960, uh, he went with Khrushchev to Paris for a conference. Yeah. And after the conference, he basically told Khrushchev, look, Let's take a car, just go to Champagne region, just I'll show you where a certain found. So he goes there, found the peasant house where he stayed at a certain moment, and he is recognized. Yeah. He throws a party. And basically <laughs> even he even just he basically remembers the bar he frequented. He is kind of he walks in and the owner recognizes him. Again, the party continues. There's another story that he basically um, attends the one of the annual memorial services of the Russian cemetery. So you basically have all the immigrant community and the marshal of the Soviet Union pops up there out of nowhere. And then when the Tsarist flag is passed in review, he basically snaps to attention and salutes. So I think it's probably one of the most illustrious military careers you could think of. I mean, basically the guy went from kind of the, the juniors of the juniors of the ranks, basically, to the becoming the Minister of Defense and the marshal of the Soviet Union. Wow. One remark I want to do, and especially I think for the Western audience, I think it would be interesting. Mm. Because... This guy would be a prime candidate for the 1937 purges uh, of Stalin. I mean, basically, he served in France, he served in Spain, he spent enough time abroad to basically be uh, kind of uh, purged with Tukhachevsky and the likes. And he actually survived. Um, I haven't seen any reports of him actually being in prison. For example, like Rakasovsky, who spent some time in prison. Uh, but eventually, he has never had any uh, big uh, issues, and he survived the purges somehow, which is kind of interesting to me. At least, I, I probably need to dig more into the story. Yeah, please do, and then come back and tell us it again. Um, he sounds brilliant. You mentioned uh, Corsi, you've mentioned a cemetery, and that I know pe battlefield people are going to be like, they want to know what they can go and see of the Russians on the Western Front. Where can they go? What can they look at? Uh, well, uh, Reims is, is, is your city. Or Rem, mm -hmm. how we call how the French call it. it, it Rems in Russian, so they can't keep pronouncing it. Um, the Fort de la Pompelle, there's a small museum there with the Russian uniforms. So you can see the Edwin helmets with the Russian insignia. You can see the rifles. Uh, basically, they're equipped with French equipment. So there's nothing to see but the uniforms and the helmets. It actually has a very beautiful collection of the German helmets as well. So very interesting collection to see. So it's a small uh, uh, fort. It has never been restored, so you can still see, see the battle damage. About two miles away, there's a place called saint hilary le grand mm. uh, There's a very small cemetery there. I think there are like 500 men buried there. Uh, 
it's kind of interesting and sad to see kind of the Russian names written in the French kind of transcription. Uh, like all the French cemeteries have a French cross and basically says the name, the unit, and then says more for Le France, dead for the, uh, died for France. It's very interesting. It has a very beautiful kind of northern looking church, Russian church there. There's still services there. Uh, just across the road, there's a small memorial with the words written by the doctor of the Russian legion. Uh, I think it's a doctor. Yeah, I think it was a doctor. There's a memorial in Kursi. Um, you can walk to the uh, Fort uh, Brimont, which is just right next to Kursi. I think it's still closed uh, for entrance because it's still full of shelters. Basically, uh, yeah, it's still closed after the war. But you can just see the places. And uh, I think that's pretty much it, I would say. That's brilliant. Sergey, thanks so much for coming on and giving us a comprehensive history of the Russians on the Western Front when people don't really often remember they were there. So we totally needed to do this story. And thanks for giving me a kick up the backside and reminding me we hadn't recorded it yet. Well, thank you for inviting and thank you for, for listening. Well, I hope it was interesting. I hope it was entertaining. And uh, if we're next time in France, uh, we actually can uh, make a small detour, have a look and then stop in rain, have our champagne. Absolutely. I love it. Do you know, Russians I love the Sherlock Holmes pub drink. there. Yeah, we can go there. I'm not sure mixing Guinness and champagne would be a good idea, but let's try it. Let's try it anyway. What's the worst that can happen, right? Yeah. And if not, I'll see you in Gallipoli in a few weeks. See you soon. Join us tomorrow when finally, he's waited so long for this to air, Matt Willis will be talking all things Battle of Taranto to us. Alina didn't even know there was a Battle of Taranto in World War II. I don't think she even knew there was a Mediterranean, but oh God, it's like she's all grown up. She knows the difference between a ship and a boat. Ladies and gentlemen, we have achieved something during lockdown. Just don't mention submarines and the nuances of what's called them because that totally fries her mind still. But join us for this. It's a really excellent talk on some naval stuff from World War Two. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus and we would really appreciate it as we would love to do so. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 